welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my, I'm Onisha Sudarshan, one of the Cardiothoracic Surgery Fellows at Mayo Clinic, and today we'll be speaking with Dr. Shanda Blackman, Thoracic Surgeon at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Dr. Blackman, thank you for taking the time to discuss the topic of esophageal diverticula with us today. Thank you. It's a great opportunity to get to speak to the residents, and any opportunity to teach is a great day. We will begin with a case of a 75-year-old man with a past medical history remarkable for a well-controlled diabetes and hypertension who is referred to you by his primary care physician for a Zenker's diverticulum. The patient presented with symptoms of halitosis and regurgitation of undigested food, which prompted a workup with an upper GI study. The upper GI study confirmed a Zenker's diverticulum. What would be your initial approach to this patient in the clinic? Whenever I see an elderly patient, 75 years old with diabetes and hypertension, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously ruling out any coronary artery disease, making sure they're fit for surgery. Specifically, looking at the Zinker's diverticulum, I would want to know if they were on any medication, as some opioids and narcotics can affect esophageal motility. I would also want to know if they've had any prior surgery. Any prior scar tissue can make proximal dilation of the esophagus and a distal stricture look like a diverticulum, but in fact, that's a pseudo-diverticulum. In other cases, I would like to know if the patient has any significant symptoms, the history of those symptoms, any other history of malignancy. If they'd had a head and neck cancer, that would certainly make me more worried that this is not specifically a Zinker's diverticulum, but could be a sign of a recurrent cancer, or if they've had any prior spine surgery, I would especially want to know about that before ordering an upper endoscopy or any other tests. Okay. Given all those factors, this patient uh, is in good health otherwise, and uh, you have ruled out malignancy. Uh, You would proceed with an upper uh, endoscopy in all patients? I think uh, doing an upper endoscopy on a patient with a Zinker's diverticulum can be quite difficult. Uh, Some people who do not realize the patient has a Zinker's could be performing the endoscopy and go down through the diverticulum and perforate. So I would actually prefer to do the endoscopy myself, taking care to make sure that there's no abnormal endoscopic uh, appearance of uh, abnormal mucosa at the time. I could do it the same day as I was doing a repair or do it as a separate procedure before I would offer surgery, but I would, would want to survey the mucosa prior to offering the patient a repair of his anchors. Okay. And what are the treatment options for this patient, and how do you uh, go about appropriately selecting patients for each therapeutic option? So a very small Zinker's diverticulum that is asymptomatic can obviously uh, can obviously be observed. In a patient who has a lot of comorbidities, who doesn't have excessive dysphagia or regurgitation or isn't really bothered by any of the symptoms, I wouldn't really recommend having an intervention if they're super high risk. Another patient that is more like this one where they are elderly, they do have some comorbidities, but they're a fit candidate for surgery, and they do seem to have significant symptoms, I would 
typically offer them an intervention. A transoral stapling or an open myotomy are both reasonable options, and it depends on your experience. I wouldn't say there's a standard of care. Um, most institutions offer both and let patients choose. And I would educate patients if they go to one institution that only offers one as an option, they might want to seek a second opinion so that they consider the pros and cons of each of these interventions. Okay. In your opinion, are there any contraindications for transoral myotomy? Yes, a very small diverticulum is a contraindication for a transoral stapling. A patient who cannot bend their neck, if they have no flexibility of their neck, or if they have something that would preclude you from easily placing the stapler, if they've had a prior stapling, that would be a contraindication, or if the patient has uh, some type of anterior cervical spine hardware, I would consider that a contraindication. Thank you. Do you think a cricopharyngeal myotomy is essential in all patients? I think you've done an incomplete surgery if you haven't cut the cricopharyngeus muscle. If you do transoral stapling, theoretically you're cutting that portion of the muscle as well, but just merely going in and taking out the diverticulum is very incomplete surgery and it certainly will recur. Okay. What is the extent of the myotomy that you normally make? I normally cut the entire cricopharyngeus, so I proceed from the top of the cricopharyngeus and then I use a right angle to elevate the cricopharyngeus out and I use my either bovie electrocartery or a bipolar device or even scissors to cut the cricopharyngeus until I see the muscle bulging from underneath. Okay. Do you think there's a difference or do you prefer a diverticulectomy versus a diverticulopexy? I typically perform a diverticulectomy and I staple the diverticulum and then I take an interrupted uh, uh, absorbable suture, a 3-ovicral, and I imbricate it with a Limbert suture overlying the area to imbricate the, the uh, staple line and put uh, muscle against muscle to cover it. Okay. What is your routine post-operative management for these patients? I usually put them on a soft or liquid diet for several days. I'll keep them MPO, and then they begin a liquid diet maybe three days after surgery, and then a soft diet uh, thereafter. We have a foregut surgery diet, and that's typically the diet that I put these people on. It typically gives them four weeks of soft, mushy food, not having them drink anything uh, that's hot or cold, and not having them ingest anything that's uh, like chunky meat or something that might get lodged in the throat. Do you normally follow these patients with any imaging postoperatively? If the patient is elderly or if they've had a prior cerebrovascular accident, I always get a speech evaluation before I do the surgery to make sure that I know their swallowing is good, even in the presence of the zincers. Um, if I have any concerns about aspiration after, I certainly will get a speech consult to have that evaluated. Um, as a rule, if their swallow is good, I don't really recommend any other evaluation. Okay. And what are some complications to be alert for in the postoperative course of these patients? The most concerning complication after an intervention for Zinker's diverticulum is perforation or leakage. If you have a leakage at the staple line, typically draining the leak will often provide you uh, an adequate assessment 
um, uh, of whether or not there is a leak by opening the neck where you made the incision. You usually go anterior to the sternocleidomastoid, make an oblique incision, and then dissect down to the cricopharyngeus portion of the muscle. So postoperatively, if they developed a leak, you could merely reopen that incision. And for that reason, I usually place interrupted sutures so that I could just open a few of those rather than doing a running continuous suture because if you cut one part of that, then the entire wound opens up. And then I would pack a soft gauze into that area. Um, if you uh, have good success and it's a very small leak and it's treated with drainage, frequently you can just have it heal uh, by keeping them in PO for some time and placing a feeding tube past the area uh, under fluoroscopic guidance to make sure that it doesn't go into the perforation and or endoscopically placing it. Um, one of the problems with a large perforation is that it may end up giving the patient a stricture, in which case you may want to re-explore the wound and see if you could patch it with a piece of muscle to prevent them from having a stricture in that area. Okay. Thank you. Shifting gears a bit, uh, what is your routine management of patients with mid-esophageal diverticulums? Well, Manisha, as you know, mid and distal esophageal diverticulums have different etiology. A mid-esophageal diverticulum frequently is the result of traction, such as a patient with an inflammatory disorder like TB, where the inflamed lymph node pulls a portion of the wall of the esophagus out, whereas a lower esophageal diverticulum is the result of a pulsion. It's important to understand the etiology of the different diverticula because you would treat them very differently. A mere traction diverticulum can be treated with a myotomy and excision of the diverticulum diverticulum and repair of that area. Often you'll excise the diverticulum on one side and then perform a contralateral myotomy, closing the uh, muscle over your excision of the diverticulum and then doing the myotomy on the other side. Um, that can be done at the level of the carina if it's a traction diverticulum quite easily. However, if you have a pulsion diverticulum and you have, uh, say, a large epiphrenic diverticulum, those patients need to be approached from a left-sided chest approach so that you can get good access to the esophagogastric junction. And I believe that those patients require a myotomy that goes all the way down to the esophagogastric junction. If you do an incomplete myotomy and you don't all the way, go all the way down to the stomach, then you may end up with a situation where the patient has a recurrent diverticulum or they develop a leak because of an incomplete myotomy and you don't want to have that situation. So I do believe that the patients with an epiphrenic diverticulum require a longer myotomy and they also require excision of the diverticulum. The exception to that rule would be patients who have multiple diverticula maybe five or ten in different multiple locations, in which case merely doing a very long myotomy may be adequate without resecting the multiple different diverticula. Okay. And what are the factors that you consider when deciding to repair an epiphrenic diverticulum as a transthoracic repair, as you elaborated, or a transabdominal repair? Well, I think most epiphrenic diverticular are located within the chest, 
And I don't have any problem performing a biluminal approach where you may go through the chest for a portion of the procedure and then go into the abdomen. If you are performing a myotomy all the way down onto the esophagogastric junction, you will need to perform some type of a fundoplication to relieve that patient. And so if you have, say, a traction diverticulum way up by the carina, that could easily be approached from a right thoracoscopic approach or a right thoracotomy and merely performing a myotomy and excision of the diverticulum. However, if you do have an epiphrenic diverticulum, you will need to perform excision of the diverticulum and then you'll need to um, perform your myotomy. If you're not comfortable performing a fundoplication from the chest, then you'll need to perform a laparoscopic partial fundoplication. I think the other feature that's really important here is not to perform a complete fundoplication in these patients because characteristically they have a motility disorder. And so you would want to perform either a toupee or a door fundoplication. And if you're in the chest, you could potentially perform a Belzy. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Blackman, for those key principles. And finally, do you offer um, surgical management to all, to all patients presenting with epiphrenic diverticulum, or do you believe there's a role for conservative management in some patients? I think if it's a high-risk patient and they have multiple other comorbidities and it's a very small diverticulum, you may not want to offer surgery. Again, every patient's an individual, and there are certain cases where you may observe these patients, especially if they have other problems that may preclude a safe surgery, such as an abdominal aortic aneurysm, a thoracic aneurysm, or multiple other problems that might make it unsafe to intervene. However, in general, the presence of an epiphrenic diverticulum, especially one that's getting bigger over time, or if it's one presenting that's symptomatic in an otherwise healthy patient, I would recommend treatment. Thank you very much, Dr. Blackman, for your time, your valuable insights, and your expertise into the management of esophageal diverticula, a very important topic in thoracic surgery. Thank you.